longing for renewal. And someday all of creation will be renewed in perfect harmony and beautiful splendor. And the Christian will be there to enjoy it all. And in a fully redeemed body. Then we learn that in this life, in all the believers' weaknesses, and we are weak in so many ways, the Spirit is there to help us. He prays for us. And He prays, we learn, with perfect understanding and a perfect knowledge of God's will. Verse 26 and 27. Now, if you're a believer, I hope you're starting to feel a sense of security when you know. This is very if you know Jesus, you should feel secure. All this that we talked about is yours by divine decree. That's up by divine power. Is it any wonder that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly presence in Christ Jesus? If there's anything you lack. And Peter can say in 1 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There isn't anything lacking. He gives us so much, and yet we're not done. In Romans chapter 8, there's more. There's still verse 28, and all things to follow that. Now, Romans 8, 28 is a sentence that has brought more comfort to more souls and inspired more courageous service in the name of Christ's kingdom than we will ever know. I mean, it's an incredible thing. All things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. That is an amazing statement. It's an anchor for the believer. We are to be fixed to it. And tragedy and loss and suffering and persecution will not drive us off that anchor. That's the place to hold on to. It's not a promise to everyone. It is a promise to Christians, to people that know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are born again. And being a Christian, being one for whom all of creation and all of history labors for the good, being a Christian is defined in a very simple way, a twofold way here. There's two realities that characterize a Christian, that define a Christian. He loves God. God is the center of the believer's affection. And secondly, he is called according to the divine purpose. Now, this idea of calling, we're going to take up again in a minute, but let's be clear on just how wonderful this promise is. Does Romans 8.28 teach that all things are good? Right, it doesn't teach that. That some things are definitely not good, right? It's not pretending. It doesn't deny or discount evil in any way. The Bible, the Bible never denies reality, ever. It explains reality. I mean, we're not doing Christian science stuff here. This isn't very good or anything. Where you are asked to pretend all the time. Well, you're not really saying that's just an illusion all the time. Because God is good. God is everything. God is good. No. God is good. God made everything. Something is made right away from him. Pretty bad. There's real bad in the world. It doesn't say all things are good. How can it say that when in chapter 3 it says that you and I are good? What it says is all things work together for good. That is, God ordains all things to the ultimate blessing and benefit of those who know Him, those who belong to Him. The classic case, of course, when you see this in action, is, is Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Joseph definitely had things happen to him that were not good. 
Anybody been sold into slavery by their own family? Nothing. He had worse than a lot of us did. I mean, one of his brothers did. They threw him in a well. And they had church. They had a wonderful church about this. But it wasn't, should we get him out of the well and take him home to dad? Or, or uh, should we leave him in the well? It was, it was, shall we kill him or sell him into slavery? That was the big question. So like, it wasn't like he had a whole lot of real positive choices in his life. They decided to be merciful to one of the boys one of the So they sold him into slavery to a bunch of foreigners who took him off the for a now that's not good. So Joseph becomes a slave, but he's a very dedicated slave. He's a good slave. So good that he earned a high position in the household of a great man. Now that's good. Not good. Good. But the great man's wife falsely accuses him of a very wicked thing. And her lie lands him in prison for a long time. Not good. Not good. Good, not good. God must have known by divine assistance Joseph becomes not only free, but a great man, second only to Pharaoh. And Joseph's wisdom got to the country to a very terrible crowd and save the lives of many thousands of people. That's good. Not good. Not good. Not good. You know the story. But eventually Joseph reconnected with his brothers. And he forgave his brothers their evil deeds. And he could forgive because he believed in the principle of Roman day 28. That's why he could do it. Long centuries before he was ever penned, he believed it. He told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's what it's all about. God can ordain even the wicked actions of men, even the corrupt nature of the physical universe, for good to us. So yes, God ordains history. Big history and your history or your good. God ordains all events in the universe to serve those who love him for their good. So slavery and prison are not good, but God made good out of those things. All those had to do with the order of things for a certain time, with patience and faith. And he does that all the time. Sometimes God does that in ways that are very subtle, sometimes he does it in ways that are very obvious. But we who love him know that that's a promise he's given to each and every one of us. And we trust him. But we might not see the purpose of what we really doing now. And when we don't see it, we have one job. It's for you that we trust him. That one job. This is his promise. Now, that's the part of that. When he mentions calling, those who are called according to his purpose, he begins to move into another area of wonder and amazement. The doctrine of election or predestination. <laughs> At verse 29, you know, when I get to verse 29, I've got this preacher's dilemma thing. I could go on and give you all the glorious comforts all in history to get from his words, or I can get in the midst of a huge theological discussion over who decides who gets saved. And it's a very important discussion. So I'm just torn between teaching you sound doctrine in a more technical way or just proclaiming the good word that you didn't choose God who chose you. But for you believe in God, it's a good word. And I'm going to try to be bald, which means I'll probably fail miserably. But we need to get ready. And remember what you did? When I was in school, they used to tell us to pull out our thinking caps. You guys were about to go. Romans 8, 29, and 30. Have been called. These verses are called among 
once theologians that love this truth. They're called the golden, called the golden chain of salvation. Because Paul offers us, offers us here five links, five theological terms in a sequence describing important aspects of salvation. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now some of these terms we know very well. Justification, for example. How many weeks did we stand on the justification? Hammering it home in chapters 3 through 5. Justification is how we are made right with God. By the gift of Christ's righteousness. But look, justification is fourth on the list. Fourth on the list. It's not the first thing. It's early in, in Romans, but when you talk about what happens in salvation from a big point of view, it's down the line. Three big things happen first. Three big things happen first. And the middle link in the chain, the, the very middle one, which comes just before justification, is calling. So we have foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. Now, the wonderful comfort here is that this chain is unbreakable for every individual that it applies to. If God foreknew you, He predestined you. And if He predestined you, He called you. And if He called you, He justified you. And if He justified you, He most certainly will glorify you. There's only one subject in these verses. I mean, the subject in the grammatical sense. There's only one actor, one doer, one person seeing that all this happens. And who is that? God. Your salvation is entirely and completely a divine order from beginning to end. You didn't win it, you didn't earn it, and Romans 3 tells us you didn't even want it. You didn't seek it. You didn't want it unless God made you want it. And this is the doctrine of divine election. Now, you're going to be hearing a lot about election and predestination, but that's one of the major concepts when we get to chapter 9. That's what it's all about. And 9 to 11 deals a lot with election and predestination. But for the rest of our time this morning, let's just look at the doctrine as it appears right here and try, if you will, to see Paul's reason for including it. Biblically understood, predestination is a great comfort to the believer. An enormous comfort. The comfort is in security. The security that is found in these five theological words. And what they mean. Paul has constructed his sentence so that the links are maintained. If, if God foreknew you, he predestined you. If he predestined you, he called you. If he called you, you're justified. If he justified, you're glorified. You can't escape the connection all the way down the golden chain. So if one of these things is true of you, all of them are true. You can't be foreknown and predestined and called and justified but fail to be glorified. You can't be justified without calling or called without predestination. Not on and back and forth. You can't. All of the links belong together. It is the golden chain of which each link describes God's saving work in every genuine Christian's life. Well, wait a minute. 
You're saying that the only people who are saved are those who are predestined. That's right. God decided long before you were born who was going to be in the kingdom. Ephesians 1 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and sinless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in Himself, according to of his will. So who chose? He chose. That word chose is all that the word that word election really means. That election. When we elect somebody, what do we do? Jerusalem. That's right. That's all it means. We elect the president, we choose him. God wants to save people, he chooses them. Now, this idea, some people find absolutely wrong. To me, it's one of the great glories of biblical theology. It's, uh, it explains so much and it sets our hearts right. Because God is all the glory. All the attention goes to Him. None of the credit goes to us. And the security factor is absolutely unshakably wonderful. People get all concerned about free will and start talking about robots and Comic-Cons and all that kind of stuff. And we'll deal with all that stuff. But whatever emotional reactions you might have to the biblical doctrine, we have a higher binding moral obligation to be true to the text. So rather than try to work around it, let's get a hold of what it actually says. And I'm committed to my election because it's biblical. If it's not biblical, throw it away. But I agree with John Calvin on this matter. And I'm not such a Calvinist at all that if Calvin is not being biblical in some aspect of theology, that I'm going to rework scripture to fit a system of theology. That's not what we're doing. I don't do that, and I, um, I won't do that. Systems are systems. They're man-made. But, by the, but I'm using that term Calvinism because it's, it, it is the way the church talks. In very simple church terms, in the church world, if you believe in divine election that God ultimately chooses, you're labeled a Calvinist, whatever you want to call yourself. It doesn't matter. That's what you're labeled. If you believe that man has a free will to believe or not believe and that your will, the human will, is the ultimate factor, then you're called an Arminian. And uh, Arminius is another guy. So there's two theologians and these systems of thought grew from them. So... Now, Calvinism is a lot older than Calvin. It's actually Pauline. But even after him, it was Augustinian, long before it was Calvinistic. Now, there are people who want to be both, Arminians and Calvinists. They're my favorite people because they're really confused. But that's hard to do. It's hard to do because it's hard to hold on to your brain at the same time as be both a Calvinist. But people want to do that. One of the ways people try to be an Arminian and a Calvinist at the same time is to focus really heavily on this word foreknowledge in verse 29. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The idea is that God knows the future, so he looks ahead and sees who will believe using their free will, and then he chooses them for having chosen him. That's very clever. He chooses them for choosing him. Now, that's a great thing to believe that, except it's not true. And the other part of it is, is that it has a lot of problems when you're actually dealing with the text at hand. Remember, Romans 8.29 does not say what God foreknew. It doesn't say one word about what he foreknew, looking into the future. What it says is who 
knew he foreknew. Keep that in mind, that's real important. He foreknew people. It says nothing about human choices there at all. And remember that because in Romans chapter 9, Paul could not be clear that election is not based on human choice or human character. I mean, he goes way out of the way to make sure that you can't come away thinking that. This foreknowledge idea also doesn't give enough weight to human depravity. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So if God's looking into the future to see what human beings are going to choose, what's he always going to see? People that don't even seek him. That's all he's going to see. Ephesians 2.1, the great salvation passage, is even stronger. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 5 of Ephesians 2, it says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive in Christ. Alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. When you were dead, God made you alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2.5. So apart from divine action, human beings have no capacity to come to God. So if God is foreseeing, all he's going to see are a lot of dead people that cannot seek him, that are not righteous, and have no inclination towards him. That's what he would see. Man has a will. We do have a will. Is it free? Depends on what you mean by that. You are free to go to lawns. Or Alpha Beta, no, not Alpha Beta anymore. Or um, Stately Brothers, or you're free to go see Harry Potter. Well, I don't know. You're free to go see this movie versus that movie. You're free to watch this TV show or that TV show. You're free to turn on the radio to this station or that. You have all kinds of freedom of your will. God does not sovereignly ordain every choice that you make. But when it comes to choosing Him, you're not free because your will is in bondage. Martin Luther, the great reformer wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. Your will is in bondage to sin. So in terms of righteousness or spiritual truth or anything like that, you will choose the wrong thing every time. Now, you can call that free. I always choose evil, but I'm free. You can call that free if you want to. But that's what the scripture teaches. You always choose wrong spiritually, apart from the grace and action of God. So it's not that man is a robot, it's that he's wicked. He's a rebel, choosing to live in opposition to the God who is there. That's what he does with his will. Now, Adam and Eve were really free. They could choose good or evil. They chose evil, plunged their race into sin. Now, their descendants choose evil. So, the sinner's not a robot. He's just a sinner. Ephesians chapter 2 explains that man is dead spiritually. So how does he come alive? That's the question. How does a dead person come alive? God makes him alive. And the golden chain of Romans chapter 8 explains the process. So let's go back to that golden chain for a minute. The idea that foreknowledge means looking ahead to see man's free choice really does horrible, horrible things to the chain in, in Romans 8, 29, and 30. It destroys Paul's whole purpose in offering it for one thing. Where this foreknowledge idea hurts the chain is that middle link. Calling. The middle link there. Okay, now everybody up to speed with me so far? Okay, take a big breath because we're about to go a little deeper. Gotta hang on. 
that fascinating step. Calling. The idea of calling is used in two ways in the New Testament. One is what theologians call the external call or the general call. And that is the proclamation of the gospel that God makes to all people. Here's an example of the general call, or the external call. Jesus says to a crowd of people, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. And when he said that, did everyone come? No, it was a call that went out and fell on their ears. It was external to themselves and came to their ears and they heard it. That is the external call. God calls people. That's the kind of call talked about in Matthew 22. There's the big marriage supper and a lot of people are invited but not everybody comes. And the conclusion of the parable is many are called but few are chosen. So that's using called in the general sense that the gospel goes out into all the world and people hear it. Now there is also very clearly, biblically, what's called an internal call or an efficacious call. Boy, that's a big word, isn't it? An efficacious is something that is done, as there's an action there. This is the call that is made effective by the Holy Spirit in the life of a person. It is closely connected with regeneration or the new birth idea. So whereas at one time a man is dead in sin, the Holy Spirit takes the preached word, which is the external call, and awakens the sinner, and the sinner becomes alive to God, that's the new birth, and his mind understands and accepts and his will receives the truth of the gospel. That's the inward call. So God actually causes a person to respond to the gospel by an operation of the Holy Spirit, bringing life where there was death. So the will is awakened to spiritual things and then the the will is empowered to accept the gospel. That's the internal call. God literally calls out of darkness into the kingdom of light people and we respond by a gracious work of his spirit. Now there are many scriptures describing this inward efficacious call. Let me just throw a few at you real quick. 1 Corinthians 1.22, it says, Indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now you see how called is necessarily limited there? The, the word goes out to all kinds of people. Jewish people hear the external call and many of them say that's that's not right. They stumble over that. Greeks, Gentiles hear that external call and they say, well, that's stupid. How can a man die for other people's sins? How can God become a man? That's crazy. But then in verse 24 it says, but to those who are the called, Jews and Greeks, out of that, there are called people. So it's got to be different than the general external call. He's talking about the internal call of God in human hearts. Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So again, maybe many wise and many noble people heard the external call, but how many people heard the internal call? Not many wise, not many noble. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9 talks about God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which were granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So there's an external call and there's an internal call. One is general one is efficacious, directed at the heart that actually causes people to respond. Now, in Romans 8, 29 and 30, that tells us that all who are called are justified, right? For knowledge, predestination, called, justified. Those who are called are justified. Is that the internal call or the external call? Which one? It's got to be internal, right? Otherwise, everyone who heard the gospel would be justified. It's got to be, right? It must be inward because many people who have an external call are not justified. Now, the inward call then is this influence on the heart to respond to the gospel. God does something to ensure a positive response because all who have this call are justified. So, if foreknowledge just means God looks forward and sees who will respond to his call, the golden chain breaks apart. Because then it's up to them. And some who hear that call are not going to respond. That is, if God calls only those who will respond favorably to his call by using their own free will, then calling just doesn't have any meaning because it doesn't do anything. You see that? It doesn't work. It falls apart within this own, just one text here. If the call is effectual, if it has an influence, then we're back to God choosing predestination according to whose will? His will. So if the call has no influence, though, on the human decision, then it's not an influence and it doesn't do anything and it becomes a meaningless concept. So the point is, Paul has constructed the chain, even the grammar, so that you cannot infer from it that foreknowledge is God simply looking ahead and seeing who will accept him by their own free will. It just doesn't work. So what is foreknowledge that starts this golden chain? Well, the word foreknowledge is a Greek word. We get our word prognosis from it. Prognosko. That's the Greek word. Pro means before, right? Gnosis is knowledge, or gnosko means to know, to know before. So it does have that meaning. But you know, the way that word was used in the ancient world is much the way it's used today. It can mean, we can mean different things when we say no. We can mean, I know about that, or we can mean, I know him. I know that guy. Yeah, we went to school there, we were buddies. Yeah, I know him. It's relational, right? Same way in the Bible. The word know can mean knowledge like what's in your head or it can be a relational term. To know someone in the ancient world often meant to have a relationship with them. In fact, we still know people who say, well, did he know her in the biblical sense? You know, you know, when people say that, what do they mean? They mean intimately, right? Because that word is used that way. Genesis 4.1, now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. I know her. Hey, she's suddenly pregnant. What does that mean? 
something else happened there. There was intimate knowledge, a relational kind of knowledge. So know is often a relational term. It can mean intimate relationships or just a close bond with somebody or something like that. That is the meaning in Romans chapter 8. God had a relationship with the elect, with the chosen, before the foundation of the world, before they ever even existed. Jeremiah 1.5. God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God made all those decisions before he was born. It doesn't say, before I formed you in the womb, I knew that you would choose, that I would... It doesn't do that. It doesn't talk about choices. He talks about people. And that's what the golden chain describes. He formed people, not choices, not actions. He does know what your actions are going to be, but that's not what he's talking about. So he knows us, too, from eternity past. And in that foreknowledge, that relational knowledge that he chooses to have with certain people, he predestines us. He, what does predestined mean? Before destiny, right? He ordains our destiny before it ever happens. So he ordains our destiny beforehand, and he effectually calls us to that destiny, and he justifies us by the blood of Christ to fit us for that destiny, and he glorifies us with him, which is our destiny. Romans 8.29 gives us the goal of all this divine activity. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God is exalting Christ in our salvation. And his purpose for us is our good, that we be like Christ in holiness and love, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's his purpose. And just as in 828, infinite power and wisdom work all things for our good, so too divine power maintains the golden chain of salvation from beginning to end, so that not one of God's children is ever lost. Now, is that comforting or what? It is if you're on the inside, if you're part of the chain. Now, let me just say, lest anybody freak out, what if I'm not chosen? I'm doomed. No. If you come, you're chosen. That's how it works. That, if, if God is operative in your heart and you believe, you are chosen. You can't, be, you can't miss out. So can you find comfort here? Yes. Your salvation from beginning to end is a decree of an all-powerful sovereign who will see you through to the end. And you can't break the chain he's forged, not if you're in Christ. You can't do it. Nobody can. A divine power holds it together. And that leads us to the fantastic paragraph that closes out chapter 8. But that's for next week. You're going to look at it, but it's for next week. But let me conclude this morning with the words of um, a pastor, Kenneth Johns, who wrote a cute little book, and it's really quite well written. It's called Election, Love Before Time. But I'll tell you, if you want to dig into this deeper, I would recommend R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. It's quite an excellent discussion of this. Pretty solid right down the line for the most part. Let me read you this paragraph. The very certainty with which Paul desires to place within the mind of believers is that preservation amidst suffering and trials 
is not dependent upon man's choice or will or power. In other scriptures, there are many admonitions to stay firm in the faith and to endure suffering. That is our responsibility. But in Romans 8, Paul is looking at the issue from the divine side and is declaring that the issue is guaranteed to the true believer by the power of God. That is why man's will must not be allowed to intrude. Paul does not consider it as affecting the divine activity, and neither should we. Man is thought of only as the recipient of God's labor and grace. Paul declares the certainty of glorification because it is being rooted in the eternal purposes of the omnipotent, sovereign God. It is certain that the believer will be conformed to the image of Christ, for that is what God originally determined to do, and nothing can stand against him. Considering that he is God, no other conclusion is possible. And then he goes to the next line in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's the great comfort. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that we would understand it exactly in the manner that you would have us to. That we would focus on the golden chain as our anchor and our hope. And not something that is exclusionary, but something that is profoundly inclusive because it holds us from beginning to end. And that is the great truth. We thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.